Well, good morning. Um, am I muted? No, I'm on. All right. So this morning, we wanted to start off with a quick exercise, and uh, not physical exercise, thankfully, because of the smoke in the air, but I want you to um, just briefly think back about this past week and think about a decision that you made. Um, It doesn't have to be a major decision, not a life-altering decision, but a decision that you made this week and just jot it down. Um, it can, and if you have a couple decisions, you can write a couple decisions down just on the, in your notes there. So I'll give you a minute or two for that. Some of you didn't bring writing utensils. That's okay. You can write down your phone. Well, early on in our marriage... Um, I received an email, and I remember getting an email like this. In fact, I got several over the years um, that were telling me about um, a Nigerian prince. I don't know if anybody else was contacted. I received this email that it turns out it was a scam. He said he needed to get some money to get free the rest of his wealth, and then he was going to give me a portion. You know, I give a little now, and then later on there would be a huge reward for me. A vast amount of money. And thankfully, I did not send any money to this uh, Nigerian prince. Um, But there's been a few other things that I've noticed in the more recent years. Not Nigerian princes contacting me. But um, a couple of years ago, I got home from vacation. And on our front doorstep, there was a large box, a large heavy box that says Tesla on the outside. Now, I would have been more excited if it was big enough to fit a car inside it, but it wasn't. But it was some sort of Tesla-related product. And as I looked at the packing slip and stuff like that, it said that it was a Tesla home charging station. And uh, this is a little confusing to me because I don't have a Tesla, so why would I need a charging station? Well, upon looking at my credit card statement, it showed that I had purchased one. And so I contacted uh, my credit card company, and I contacted Tesla and said, I don't want this, um, and I'd like a refund. And they were nice enough to accommodate. I don't know if that was Tesla or my credit card company was accommodating, but one of them was, and I got my money back. It turned out there was actually two Tesla charging stations ordered. The first one had been delivered somewhere over by Seattle because they, after it was shipped, they changed the shipping where it was supposed to go. And I'm guessing that's how they collected their product. And then they called and said, hey, we didn't get it. And when Tesla sent the second model um, to my house, they gave instructions that shipping can't be altered. And that's when I got the package. Well, those were both, turns out, forms of scams. You know, somebody trying to get money from me in exchange for a large reward down the road, or the next one was trying to get, um, they were getting something using my name. Um, This morning, I got a text, and apparently I have a package that can't be delivered. And if I just, in fact, I think we have the text here. Yeah, you can't really see it here. It's not really good. But it says, basically, we need some more information. We can't deliver a package. 
And I, was, I thought it was funny that it came in this morning with me talking on this subject. They just need me to send some information to USPJS dot something dot something. And I thought, I think I know better. Thankfully, I did not uh, give them any of my personal information because they may have been trying to steal my identity. And our identity is important to us. And today we are going to be talking about restoring that, um, the restoration that God has planned for our bodies and for the world. And it involves our identity. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, as we enter into this passage today, I pray that you would be speaking to each of us, that you'd help me, Lord, um, not be myself, but Lord, to be your mouthpiece today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, last week we um, were looking at the passages in the first 11 verses of Romans, and Dan took us through what it means to be led by the Spirit. Um, talking about confronting us, you know, and like, and greeting us. He talked about how the Lord can convict us when we're doing something wrong. And he also talked about how he guides us, like a father leading their child in a home project or something. And uh, he left us with verse 11. And I'm going to restate verse 11 here because verse 12 starts off with, so then meaning, hey, we're picking up where we just left off, and so we want to catch up with that. Verse 11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And as Dan said last week, that is the identity of a Christian. When the Spirit dwells in you, you are a Christian, a little Christ. And the uh, verse 12, we pick up, and it says, So then, basically, you know, okay, if you have Christ in you, you are a believer. So then, brothers, we are not debtors. We, sorry, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And all who are led by the Spirit of God are, God, uh, are sons of God. Now, verse 12, it starts off there with um, kind of giving us like, you know, we are, not, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And a lot of the English Bibles have a M dash at the end of verse 12. And the ESV doesn't, but a lot of versions do. And it's because in the original language, verse 13 is, it's parenthetical. He's speaking parenthetically, which means that he's explaining what he just said. It's going a little more in depth. And so when we look at verse 13, we're not, uh, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Let me explain that a little more. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, you'll, uh, you will put to death the deeds of your body, and you will live. When we have the Spirit in us, we're not debtors to the flesh anymore. That doesn't mean we won't sin, as Dan talked about last week. It doesn't mean we won't sin, but it means that God is working in us to make us who God wants us to be. 
We're not debtors to that old sinful nature anymore. Our debt is to Christ. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We have the Spirit in us, and we're being led by God. Verse 15, For you do not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. For the Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. Now, um, verse 15 there, it talks about how uh, we are, we do not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. And I don't know about you, but um, when I was a non-believer, and a lot of non-believers do things out of fear, fear of what could happen. You know, we do, they do good at their job because they're afraid of what might happen if they don't. They drive roughly the speed limit because they're afraid of a ticket. They pay their taxes because they don't want to go to jail. You know, and, and a lot of non-believers do things out of fear. And we have that potential if we, when we're living by the flesh, when we're doing things that we're not supposed to, when we're not following the Spirit's leading, we can kind of fall back into that. We may be like, oh, I'm doing this because I don't want to get this negative consequence. But we have received the spirit of adoptions as sons. And, you know, the, the term adoption is such an amazing thought when we think about God has called us. He said, come on, I want you. He wants each of us. And the word here, um, it says, we, whom we cry, Abba, Father. There's actually two different forms of the word for father. It's like in, our, in most languages there are. In our language, we have father and dad or daddy. And if you think of a child walking in, you walk into the house and you hear a child call out daddy. Oh, it's a wonderful sound. I remember when my young, or my oldest at the time, when she was just little and I'd come home from work and she'd, Daddy's home! And they, oh, it was such a joyous feeling. And, you know, at some point they grow out of that, so we kept having kids. And, uh, and we, you know, and, and we're getting near, you know, like where only two of them now say, Daddy's home! And I'm like, where are the rest? They're off working on doing something. But, In this, we see that we are children of God, and we call out to him in those two names, that more of a formal name, Father, or Daddy. And when you, the kids are calling out to me, they're not calling out Daddy because they're afraid of some consequence. We don't have a natural um, fear of of a good father figure just because they're getting home. When they call out daddy, it's a form of a love, a love of, oh, dad's home. Now, we have that relationship with our Heavenly Father. 
And we're going to move into this next passage portion of it here. It talks a little more about suffering because it ended with the term talking about we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Verse 18, for I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing to the glory that is revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing to be revealing of the Son of God, for the revealing of the Son of God. For the creation was subject to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The creation itself will be set free from the bondage to uh, from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul moves directly from this discussion, his discussion that he's previously having, into the, the meaning of suffering. And of course, the first thing he does is he puts it into an eternal perspective. And I really love this because he's, he says, consider the suffering of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. He's like, you know what? This is nothing. We, we think of it right now as like, oh, there's so many problems and stuff. And it's because we don't have an eternal perspective. Jesus shares in Luke 16 a story of Lazarus and a rich man. And in this story, Luke 16, it says, there was a rich man dressed in, dressed in purple cloth and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate, there was a laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered in sores, and he desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at the t uh, by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip his, the end of his finger into the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember, remember that you in your lifetime received the good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Now, in this parable, Jesus explains that Lazarus had bad things now, and you had good things, and now it's reversed. Now, when we look at this, if we tried to assess God's goodness in each of these mans prior to their deaths, we would have been working with only half the story. And it teaches us two fundamental truths. God lets his children suffer for his own purposes. Not for our own purposes, but God lets his children suffer for his own purposes. And our relationship with God cannot be measured by the quality of our life 
on earth. We can't measure our relationship with God by what's going on in our lives. If we do that, we can see a lot of problems. If we looked at Jesus' life as our ultimate example, he goes around telling people, preaching and telling people about God and what, is, what happens in return. He's mocked. They tried to stone him. He's eventually arrested, whipped, and crucified. You know, when we look at Jesus' life, we wouldn't go, oh, he had it so easy. I mean, he turned water into wine. I mean, that's pretty cool. He did some other, you know, walking on water. Yeah, that's awesome. But were things really that easy? I would say no. His life started off being chased by the emperor at the time, chased to be killed, to be put to death. There's just, as we look over Jesus' lifetime, there's example after example of how people were trying to harm him. People, and I would say spiritual entities. Well, it's not worth comparing the glory that has been, uh, sorry, in the end of verse 18, it says, it's not worth comparing uh, with the glory that has been, that is to be revealed to us. If we look at the, the, the things that are bothering us, or the hardships in our life, which are really minor, if you look at the expanse of human history as we know it, um, you know, our, our struggles are like, oh, it's too hot in my house or it's smoky. You know, those are some of our daily problems right now. You know, maybe they're larger problems. Maybe they're, you know, marriage issues or, you know, fighting in your marriage. Or maybe it's uh, financial concerns. And there are concerns. Those are, those are worldly concerns. And some of those may be, I mean, you know, like when the Powerball was up to $1.6 billion, you know, you know, there's always that hopeful, maybe I could win, and that would take care of all my problems, right? But the studies over people that have won the lottery and things like that, and what's happened to their life afterwards, the vast majority of them are ruined. Whether their relationships are ruined, their finances are ruined. And sometimes you have to look at it and go, you know, maybe it's just a blessing that hasn't happened to me. Maybe God is directing my path so that doesn't happen. Well, um, also at the end of this passage, it compared it to childbirth. And this is a good example. If we think of childbirth and the pain that somebody goes through, I mean, you know, women make such a big deal over this. Um, (laughs) But the pain of childbirth is of small period of time compared to the years of joy of having children. I mean, we wouldn't have seven if that was too big of a deal. You know, there's something um, that God is doing 
for our benefit in this time. When we're going through struggles, it's not because, you know, I mean, it can be because we've made bad choices, but at the same time, it may be because God is trying to teach us something. He's trying to do something for our benefit, and it just takes a little bit of shifting. For some reason, that benefit depends on our suffering, or at least at this time. You know, as a parent, I'm constantly reminded of things I need to redirect my children on, you know, and as a parent, you wouldn't let your children go out and play on the freeway. It's just something you go, oh, no, I, that's, you shouldn't do that. That's not something you just go and experience and learn. You wouldn't let your, uh, your kids play with wild animals that are dangerous, not intentionally at least. We instruct them and warn them, and if they continue, the consequences grow. You know, even with driving, I mean, to be allowed to drive a vehicle legally, we have to go through training courses. We have to go through training courses and then have time of practice, and then eventually they give you a test to make sure you learned all the stuff that you were trained in, and then say, okay, we'll give you this. But if you break these rules, we're going to pay, you're going to pay money. You know, I mean, there's, there's still consequences. There's consequences all around us that the world has set up in our lives. Well, next Paul moves on to, um, from suffering in creation and examining the suffering in our, uh, the suffering in our personal experience. Because if we're really honest, I mean, we want to know what's in it for us. So let's take a look specifically here in verse 23. And not only creation, but, our, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirits, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Not hope that, we, uh, that is seen. Uh, sorry. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For the hope that, that for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. Now, the word groaning there is just a euphemism for suffering, I would say. Um, I mean, sometimes we do groan. We are, you know, as we get older, I remember when I was in college, I would wake up and I had accidentally slept through my alarm and I wake up and I look at the clock and I have 10 minutes to be in class. And I would be able to roll out of bed, slip on clothing so I could make it to class and look halfway presentable and be there on time. Now, I wake up and I go, oh. I have that groaning of getting older. We, I move slower. I have trouble getting out of bed. Well, not a lot of trouble, but a little bit of trouble. Um, I don't want to get up. I'm not well rested because I don't sleep as well as I used to. There are groanings, but those groanings are little in compared to our looking at eternity. You know, I think back um, over the years, there's two people in my life that um, have passed away that have been close to me, real close to me. Um, one is, well, actually three, but two, they're going to work in this analogy. Um, my grandfather passed away in 2002, and he was really close to me, but I 
can't share personal stories like this. Um, my grandmother, they'd been married for over 65 years. And she always said that he was her beloved. And when we, uh, she lived until 2018. Most of the time in her own house by herself, my mom would go visit at least once a day, if not twice a day, and visit her and sit with her and talk for a while. And, and my grandmother was very active and had a church community around her and stuff like that. So she wasn't like isolated by herself or anything. But when I would go and visit her, every time, almost without fail, she would, you know, I would say, oh, it's good seeing you. Oh, yeah, I know. I'm ready for the Lord to take me whenever he's ready. I'm ready to go be with my beloved again. I know we're not married in heaven, you know. She, she, but she was like, I'm ready whenever the Lord is ready to take me. And I, you know, my mom would always, you know, respond with, well, maybe he's not ready for you yet, you know. <laughs> um, and I think there's some truth to that. God has a time for us. God has a time and a plan for our lives. And maybe it's something he's doing in our lives. Maybe it's something he's doing in the lives of the people around us. And I always, my response was, was well, maybe God wants you around here for us. Maybe God wants you to be working in our lives, to be speaking into our lives. And she would go, oh, I know, but I'm ready. My dad, um, in 2001, um, had gotten the COVID vaccine. Johnson Johnson developed Guillain-Barre from that. And Guillain-Barre is a... Way to hold back emotion. Um, Guillain-Barre is a disease that starts out in the, usually in the legs and slowly paralyzes you working its way up. And there's some things that they can do to stop that, but they didn't figure it out in time with my dad. And I remember one of the last times I saw him, and he said, you know, this is not a way I want to live. I'm ready to be with Jesus. And they have that hope that this passage refers to. They had the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits are just the little portion that in the Old Testament, the people would take the first fruits of their produce, the first fruits of their harvest. They would give that to the Lord. And here it says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have just, just a little portion of what eternity is going to be like. That Spirit lives in us. God has given us just a little portion of that, the first fruits. And we wait eagerly for that full adoption, that full, full being a child of God as the redemption of our bodies takes place. We look forward to that hope with faith. And like my grandmother, with patience, she was ready. Um, verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with the groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes uh, for the saints according to the will of God. According to um, the will of God. And you know, as we look at this, I'm, oh, I love this part here. In the aspect of when I pray, myself gets in the way. I'm usually, you know, Lord, you know, please help me with this. I want what's best for me. But it says here, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Our weakness is in the flesh and our selfishness and things like that and what we want. And I prayed that my dad would be healed. And that wasn't the plan that God had for him. You know, I wanted my grandfather to be around longer. But God had other plans. Um... But the Spirit who dwells in each of us speaks for us. And the Spirit perfectly aligns with God's will. So when we're praying, oh Lord, let me win the lottery, God's like, and the Spirit inside is like, Lord, don't let them win the lottery. (laughs) It will ruin him. And thankfully, there's many things in my life where I've been praying for one thing, and it ends up going a different way. And I know that the Spirit that resides in me, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit that is in me, is speaking on my behalf going, he doesn't really know what he's talking about, God. Here's what he really wants. I was just noticing with my wife, we noticed just recently that... um, Back when I graduated college, I felt like the Lord told me to not apply for jobs. Now, students, children, that's bad advice, okay? You graduate with college, you usually have debt, and you have a degree that can earn you money. That's when you apply for jobs. I'm just going to give that as a blanket statement. Although that summer, my, the Lord spoke to me very clearly and said, don't apply for jobs. It's crazy talk, I know. Um, and it wasn't until just about two months ago that I realized the fruition of that and why that was. Um, as in Washington State, um, to keep a teaching certificate, you have to do things to renew it every five years, certain criteria. Um, I had graduated with a teaching certificate and did not teach and let it lapse and thought, I'm never using that again, who cares? And in 2018... I was thrust into the opportunity to use my teaching certificate that I did not have anymore. And when I called the state, they said, well, I have good news looking at your history here. Because you never taught, we can give your certificate back. (laughs) Which anybody that knows the state is like, now hold on a second here. (laughs) This seems a little odd. 
You're saying if I tithe, which in Washington State, they've changed it now to you don't have to do the things to renew it until you've taught full-time for a year and a half. Now, it's cumulative, so if you teach part-time, it's going you know, to be like three years worth. You know, but it's, so a year and a half worth of teaching experience. Then you have to go back after that every five years, and you have to do certain things to renew it. So if I disobeyed God and said, you know what, I'm going to teach for a little while, and then I'm going to, you know, if I'd done that, I might not have got my certificate back. I would have had to go back to college, and would have had to go back through, do a lot of certification training. But because I listened to the Lord, I took his advice, said, okay, I'm not going to apply. I'm going to wait on you, Lord. And the Lord provided a job for me. You know, I didn't know what I was asking for. I'm sitting there going, oh, I hope there's a good school out there. Lord, let there be a good school. Let, let a good school that I can teach at. Back in 2000 or in the 90s. And because I listened to the Lord and said, okay, I'm not going to apply at this time. I was able in 18 years, 19 years later to get my teaching certificate back by just sending a check to the state. Still... Still shocked at that. Um, this last couple verses here, we're going to go through verse 30. In verse 28 it says, And we know for those that love God, all things work together for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed into the images, image of his Son, in order that we might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called, and whom he called, he ju also justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. And this passage here, um, there's a couple things in it. First of all, in verse 28, um, It gives us a couple things, because first of all, we know that we're in the Spirit if we, when we are followers of Jesus, when we accept Him into our lives, He gives us a Spirit. And so it says, for all those who love God, all things work together for good. It doesn't say for our good. It doesn't say it's, my life's going to be easy. In fact, just the opposite thing is told to us in the Gospels. Is Jesus says, if you're followers of mine, you're going to be persecuted. That's not easy. That's not going to be like life is going to be great. And this verse right here, you know, is just blatantly obvious. Like, it's going to be for good. When I'm like, okay, it'll be good if I win the lottery. That's not good. That's a bad thing for you. It's going to be working out for good for those who are called for his purpose. Now, this last passage here, um, this goes into a long debate of people over the centuries much smarter than I am. And there's two things that are looked at here. This is one of those passages where people talk about predestination, where they say, you know what, we don't have free will to choose God. He's picking us. He's picked each one of you, and he's already got them all, us all like picked out. And the other side of that is people who say we have free will. We have free will to, you know, make our own decisions. And I 
To be perfectly honest, I fall, don't believe this is one of those either ands or either ors. I think it's a both and. And I think the best way for us to understand it is to understand a little bit more about dimensions. Now, as a science teacher, I think, okay, there's really, you know, I used to be like, okay, we've got length, width, height, and time are four dimensions. Um, and those are ones that we commonly think about. And we can't really, the only thing we can do is experience time. We can't really move it around or anything like that. But I think the, our best understanding of that is actually um, in a video that I've got for us from a teacher that I really respect. His name is Chuck Missler. And I don't know if you've, any of you have heard of Chuck Missler or how many of you have heard of him. But he's done a great series. Um, he's actually passed away in a few years back. Um, and there, but there's a recorded video series. These aren't ones that are like, ooh, that's catching my attention. They're very educational, but they take a lot of concentration to go through because um, he's feeding you rapidly. So we're going to take a look at about this dimensional talk, um, and he's going to give us an example of that to help us to learn, and so maybe it'll help make things a little clearer. There's an ancient Hebrew sage by the name of Nachmanides who wrote in the 12th century. By simply studying the Hebrew text of Genesis chapter 1, concluded that the universe has 10 dimensions. He's, in his vocabulary, only four were knowable. The other six were, in his terms, not knowable. I find that rather interesting because we've spent millions of dollars on atomic accelerators that have caused particle physicists to conclude that we live in 10 dimensions. Four are directly measurable, the three spatial dimensions we know in time. Six are curled in less than 10 to the minus 33 centimeters and thus are inferable by only indirect means. And I think that's fascinating that the leading frontier of quantum physics is now caught up to where Nachmanides was 12, in the 12th century. But um, there are only two kinds of people that seem to be able to deal comfortably with hyperspaces, uh, spaces of more than three dimensions. And that's mathematicians with special training and small children. If I was going to try to communicate to you uh, aspects of four-dimensional or five-dimensional space, we'd both be having a tough time because outside our direct experience. But we can get some feeling for hyperspaces by going down a dimension. Let's, as three-dimensional people, let's examine two, a two-dimensional universe with two-dimensional people living in it. I want to introduce you to two friends of mine, Mr. and Mrs. Flat. I want you to be kind and compassionate here because they have a very serious handicap. They only live in two dimensions. And uh, so we're going, Mr. and Mrs. Flat live in a two-dimensional world. We are three-dimensional beings. I want you to notice some of the advantages that we have over Mr. and Mrs. Flat. First of all, we can, no matter where Mr. and Mrs. Flat are within their two-dimensional universe, we can be more intimate with both of them simultaneously than they can be with each other. I could put my finger in theory one millionth of an inch away from Mr. Flat and one millionth of an inch from Mrs. Flat, no matter where they are, I can have intimacy with both independent of their spatial relationships because I enjoy that extra dimension. Furthermore, if I should thrust my finger through their two-dimensional universe, the only thing that they would be sensitive to, they would see what? Not my finger. They would see a ring. They would see a circle. They would see a two-dimensional representation of this three-dimensional person that's intruded into the universe. If a sphere tumbles through the universe, 
they would see it as a point that would expand to, his, to a circle and then shrink to a point as it disappears. So we begin to realize that the, the, the communication of a three-dimensional object to the two-dimensional people has some challenges. How would we go about that? How would you communicate a three-dimensional object to these two-dimensional people? By a two-dimensional projection is one suggestion. So we could try to project, say, a three-dimensional cube to get it into two dimensions to help them understand it. That would be probably less than satisfactory. How would we see a three-dimensional representation of a four-dimensional hypercube? There are such things, and you can go on the internet and see them and play with them, but the more you play with them, the more you realize there's no way you'll understand them from a three-dimensional vantage point without special tools. It's not very useful. Another way you might unravel a three-dimensional object into two dimensions to communicate to Mr. and Mrs. Flat would be to unravel it. We take our three-dimensional cube and flatten it, and that would be one way. But again, it wouldn't be too uh, useful. That's actually been done with a four-dimensional cube. A four-dimensional cube that's unraveled into three dimensions is called a, a um, tesseract or a Hinton cube. There's only one place I've ever encountered it as being useful, and came in, I found it in a very surprising place. Salvador Dali uses a hypercube uh, to, um, uh, in his uh, famous painting, Corpus Christi. And uh, so uh, I was actually astounded to discover that Salvador Dali was that sophisticated mathematically to really understand the implications of a four-dimensional cube in a three-dimensional space. But uh, we'll move on here. Well, as we look at this understanding of dimensions, we can... We it can't really understand a four-dimensional universe in that aspect. We can only get a relative understanding, kind of like if we unfolded a box. Well, yeah, we can see kind of how that is represented in a two-dimensional world. We can understand how it's not a full picture. And when we look at the idea of predestination or free will, I think we don't fully understand the implications. It's like the unrolling of that box. Now, um, earlier, we, I, at the very beginning, I said, write down something, and some of you had writing utensils and some didn't. So I want you to pretend that I collected all those, and I sent them back to when you were 10 years old. And I put on it, then in August of 2023, you're going to make this decision. Well, looking at that, looking forward to that, you go, I am predestined to make this choice. But in the moment, knowing this last week, you're like, no, I made that choice. That was a free will choice. So I think we have, we can see that there would be from somebody that is outside of time, somebody that's able to look at from eternity present or before, from creation as we know it and before, to the end of time, all at the same time. They can see the whole picture like the author of a book looking at it and going, I know everything. I can interact with three pages at once. Whereas the characters, as they go through the storyline, are living it out. And I think that's where us trying to understand, are we predestined or do we have free will? I think it's not a either or. I think it's a both and. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, half the teaching team may disagree with me. Actually, maybe all the teaching team disagrees with me. I don't know. But 
the concept is, is like we may not fully be able to understand what God understands. Is that a shocking statement to anybody in here? I hope not. Because our understanding of the universe and the things in it is such a minuscule part. And to understand the, the concept of free will, I think we can understand it best um, using Jesus and, you know, and the, the Bible, and we can understand some of the concepts in there. And it doesn't say that that gift is given only to some. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's, he's putting out a choice for you. Whoever does that is going to have everlasting life in heaven with Jesus. It's kind of like a birthday present. I, I always used to tell kids in kids' church, I said, if I come with a birthday present for you and I say, I've got this present for you, here it is. Is it yours yet? And the kids would usually start off with, yeah. And I'd go, nope, not yet. I'm holding it out here. Just like the famous painting where God is reaching out to Adam and Adam is lazily holding his hand up kind of loosely towards God. That's sometimes our hearts. And as we're reaching out, God's holding out this gift for us, saying, here, I've got an amazing gift for you. Forgiveness. Just, here you go. Choose to follow me. Know that I am God. I am Jesus is my son, and that we just need to accept that gift that God is holding out. You know, it's believing is one thing, but choosing to follow him is what we need to do. It says that the demons even believe. Of course they believe. They believe who Jesus is. Jesus would tell them to be silent. But it's actually us choosing to follow God, saying, I accept that gift, and I'm choosing to follow you. Come into my life to actually walk up and say, I want that gift. It'd be so much easier if there was an actual box or something I could take, right? That'd be so much easier. But God's holding out a gift for each of us, a gift of salvation. And with that, we're going to pray. And, you know, although I think everybody in here probably has already accepted that gift, I'm going to give anybody that wants to a chance to accept that gift now. Um, and in kids' church, I always used to say it's, it's, it's easy ABCs. And I may have said that here once before, too. Um, a is admit that we've sinned. We fall short of God's perfect plan. B is believe in Jesus and who he is. And C, some people say confess. I always say choose to follow him. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So it's kind of a twofold thing there. So we're just going to pray through that right now. For anybody that wants to, if you haven't done that before, Lord Jesus, um, Lord, we know that we are all sinners. I know that I'm a sinner. And Jesus, um, I believe in you. I believe that you are God's son, that you lived a perfect life and you died on the cross for my sins. Not dying for sins you had committed, but sins that myself and everybody around us has committed. 
And Jesus, I choose to follow you. I know I've sinned. I confess those sins to you right now. And I'm choosing to make you the leader of my life. Pray, Jesus, that you'd be in my life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.